ready this morning. I'm, I'm going to speak as fast as I can to get as much in that I can uh, because it's time change weekend, I know, and you're already tired. And so um, so with that being said, I uh, hope that you can keep up with me. Uh, we've talked about that uh, with these minor prophets that we have these major themes that go on uh, throughout all of them that we can see. Five major themes. Number one is the sovereignty of God. Uh, we see that uh, the, the minor prophets continually point us to that God is always in control, that he is never out of control. And with that being said, we see that over and over and again. Uh, we see it in Zechariah, the, the number of times, the 132 times that Zechariah points out that it is the Lord's book. It is him who's acting, him who's speaking, him that we should obey, him that is always in control. We call that the sovereignty of God. And then we also see another theme that we see throughout all the prophets, uh, this kind of major theme, is that there will be an inevitable judgment of sin, that sin must be judged. And with that, uh, we want a righteous, holy judge, a good judge, the greatest judge, to be the one that's judging. If it's up to me, you're all judged and you're all condemned and going to hell. I'm the only right one in this room compared to uh, when I'm comparing to myself, and I'm the one that's judging. So we don't want myself or you to be the judge or any other person upon this earth to be the judge. We want the righteous, holy God, the pure God, to be the one that's, that's judging because he is a just, merciful, compassionate judge. And so with that, we recognize that sin separates us from God. It must be judged, and because of its judgment, we must and we are in desperate need of a Savior, one to come and save us, to redeem us, to ransom us, to bring us back from captivity. And then in that, we see the next theme, God's amazing love. We see his actions. We see what he's doing throughout Scripture. Uh, even in the garden scene, we see his love being displayed. We see his love now through the lens of the cross. We see uh, that his love being displayed on the cross, that at just the right time in our weakness, at our lowest state, at our state of desperation, full of sin, Christ sweeps in, showing his great love, uh, demonstrates it by taking our place on the cross, receiving all the wrath of God, all his judgment upon himself, so that we don't have to receive that. Instead, we get to be a part of God's amazing love, his mercy, his kindness, and that he would show us forgiveness, though we are undeserving of that. So God has an amazing love for us. So number one theme is the sovereignty of God. Number two, the inevitable judgment of sin. Number three, God's amazing love. And then what we're going to talk about this morning, uh, the fourth kind of uh, theme that we see is that God is the one that's getting us right. It's not anything that we do. It's not our own actions, but instead it is all completely God. He's the one that's getting us right. He should be the one that's getting the credit for us, as Zach prayed earlier. He's getting our sins on the cross. He's taking those sins upon himself, and then he's getting us right or getting us righteous in his eyes so that we might have a right relationship with him. So it's all his, it's his work that's being completed that needs to be completed, that is completed, that makes us right. And then next week we'll talk about the coming of a Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, the one who's going to come and save the world. We know that to be Jesus because we're reading this uh, Bible through the lens of the cross or through the lens of Christ Jesus. And so we get to read backwards some. So when we read these minor prophets of the Old Testament, uh, we're not just looking at it as something that happened in the past, but we read it as good biblical interpreters, and we read it through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of the cross. And so I want to say to you this morning that it's not our responsibility to grow a church. Uh, we're not here to grow a church. It's not, our, it's not our purpose to grow a church. We are here to grow in Christ. So we're not, my family didn't move here to, to add uh, this to a resume. We didn't move here to grow our family more. Uh, we didn't grow here, we didn't move here just to grow our bellies or whatever it may be. We came here to grow in 
Christ. And the same should be said for you also. This morning our hope is that we would grow in Christ, that we would be maturing in Christ. Psalm 131 says that we would recognize that we need to be weaned from our mother and mature and grow up. And so we see that. Well, the only way for that to happen is through the process we call sanctification. We talked a little bit about justification a couple of weeks ago. This process of sanctification is, is huge in the believer's life. That we're recognizing that it's God the one that gets us right and is also getting us right through the process of sanctification. That we're growing in Him, that we're maturing in Him. That no matter, no matter your age, whatever it is, uh, young, old, medium, whatever you want to call yourself, we are still continually growing in Christ. Yes, we want our bellies and our height to stop, but we want our growing and maturing in Christ to continue. And so that's really the purpose. When we read Zechariah, when we read Haggai, yeah, when we read Ezra, when we read these prophets, is really the point, the temple, the rebuilding of the temple. Is this really what God is desiring? Oh, that there would be a building with my name on it. Is this really what he wants or really what he desires? Is it really about as many people as we can fit into this new uh, temple? Is it really about that? Is it really about how much money we can stock up in the name of Jesus? What is it really about? It's really about him receiving glory, his name being proclaimed throughout all nations, every knee bowing at his name, everyone recognizing that he is the one that's acting, that he's the one that's getting people right, that he's the one that's righteous. And so because of his righteousness, we can be righteous also. Can you imagine for a moment, maybe you're going to apply for a new job or it's an old job that you're having to reapply for, and they ask for your resume, and so you proudly submit your resume to them, and you have a list of accomplishments, a list of education, a list of things that you say is right, references to confirm all these things about you, and you turn this in. What if for a moment you thought, on your resume, all I'm going to put on this resume is that I belong to and I follow Jesus? Now, right, you need education. You, you need some kind of a training, formal training for whatever job that you're applying for. But what if the employer of this new job that you're applying for looked at your resume and saw above all else highlighted in bold, underlined, I belong to and I follow Jesus. And that was enough. Most of you are thinking there's never going to be an employer that would ever hire me with just those that short sentence on my resume. I've, I have to add more than that. Even if I'm applying as a, a pastor or a minister at a church or a missionary to go represent Christ, I better put I belong to and follow Jesus, but I better put all these other things too. All these other things that I say uh, give me value or worth or make, make, it, uh, make myself uh, you know, worthy of being employed by uh, this, this company or organization. We don't ever really come to the conclusion that Jesus is enough until we're like Linda Jones, our fellow church member, who's lying in our hospital bed, hearing the words of Jesus, saying, Jesus is enough in this moment. In fact, he's more than enough. And as I'm welcome into the presence of Christ, praise be to God that he is enough. So at some point, we as those left, still walking, still growing, we have to get to a point where we recognize that Jesus is it, that he is enough, that what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do is enough. It's enough to get me right and keep me right. He has 
He has done it and completed it all. And so we see this kind of played out in Zechariah chapter 3 and chapter 4. Two points that I want to make to you this morning within, within a lengthy text together. So I'm going to make two simple points to you this morning. I know it's time change weekend, and I don't want your mind to be too uh, filled uh, to where you reach a point of just exhaustion and mental nap needs to happen. So let's read together. Zechariah chapter 3. Read a few verses here together, make some points, and then you respond and we'll glorify Christ together. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1 says this. This is a vision of Joshua the high priest. It's a vision given to Zechariah. It says this, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. You kind of have this picture. Maybe you've read Job and you see the same thing. Maybe you've read Matthew chapter 4 and you see the same thing with, with Jesus and, and Satan against each other in a sense. Joshua, his, his name means the Lord is salvation. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest. These are two really important uh, topics in the Bible. Joshua, the Lord is salvation. And number two, the high priest. He is the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It is, is not... This a brand or fire stick plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. You got that picture in your head right, right quick? Just picture a Joshua, whoever it may be, whatever kind of picture you have in your head. And he's clothed there with the dirtiest clothes you've ever seen. He's standing with filthy garments. He's standing in the presence of God with filthy garments. He's standing in the presence of God, of angels, and Satan with filthy garments. Who is praising him in this moment? Who would be praising his filthy garments? Only Satan. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. You look at these filthy garments and you say, Praise be to the filthy garments. Praise be that Joshua is covered in these iniquities. Praise be that Joshua is covered in these filthy garments. But God, through his sovereignty, through his righteousness, through his just judgment, through all this, through his mercy, he looks and sees differently. Verse 4 says, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. Notice, in this moment, God doesn't turn to Joshua and say, Hey, Joshua, take off your filthy clothes. Instead, he says, Remove the filthy garments from him. He employs someone to go and remove the clothes, the filthy clothes, from Joshua. Take the dirty garments off, remove them. Joshua, stand there. Let the garments be removed. He said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. What does God say? God says, I have taken your iniquity away from you. Who's doing the taking away? Who's the one that's getting things right? Who's the one that's getting Joshua right in this moment? God is the one that's acting. He's the one that's doing the righteous things. None of our righteous works ever compare to the righteousness of God. And so we must trust that he's the one that's getting us right. Who is it that's removing the filthy clothes? It's God. He's the one that's putting off, he's taking off the dirty clothes and putting on festival clothes upon him. He says, I have taken, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and then I will clothe you with pure vestments, or with festival clothes, with celebration garments. I will put you as the high priest, no longer covered in filthy clothes or filthy garments, but instead I'm going to remove those from you, and then clothe you with, with righteous, 
holy festival celebration close. We see this played out in Revelation chapter 19 too with the church. We are the church. Christ covering us with these new clothes. Taking off the old garments, the filthy clothes, the, the clothes full of iniquity, sin, all those things. Removing those from us and then clothing us with righteousness. I mean, this is what, Je- this is what Jesus talks about in John chapter 3 with Nick at night. Talking about a rebirth. I mean, did any of you have anything to do with your first birth? Think about that. I mean, what, what did you as an infant or as a baby have to do with your birth? Uh, really, absolutely nothing. Maybe from within, you struggled. Maybe you fought your mother. Maybe you were turned the wrong way or something. But ultimately, it was your mother or the doctor who did all the work of childbirth. And so Jesus comes to Nick at night saying, Hey, you know, you remember your first birth, right? That you had nothing to do with. Well, if you're going to be a follower of me, you must be born again. You must be born again, reborn. You must be a rebirth. So how are you going to do that? If you had nothing to do with your first birth... How are you going to accomplish your second birth? We can't. Someone else has to do the work for us. And that work is done in Jesus. And this is why we tell you to preach the gospel to yourself daily. To remind yourself, nothing that you, do, that nothing that you did yesterday, or that you'll do today, or that you'll do tomorrow, will amount to anything compared to Christ. But thanks be to God that he entrusts us with his gospel, that we can be employed by him as ministers of reconciliation to go and share the hope that we have in Christ, to remind folks that the clothes, the filthy clothes, can be removed, will be removed through Jesus if we allow him to do that. We can be born again if we trust in Jesus and him alone. He's the one that's doing all the work. He's getting us right, and he will keep us right. Uh, verse, uh, verse 4 again, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. It's a cool little Hebrew phrase that, that shows up here. I've taken away. I've passed over you and removed the iniquities from you, removed the filthy garments from you, and then I will clothe you with pure vestments. If there's ever a gospel-saturated moment in any of Zechariah, here it is here. That Christ does the same thing for us. He comes and he removes our iniquities. And and Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, he removes them from us. And then he clothes us with his righteousness. He puts on festival clothes on us, celebration clothes on us. No more walking in the grave, no more walking in death, no more walking in sin. Instead, Christ clothes us with celebration righteousness that we might be alive, living as Christ desires for us to live. Thank you for that. Amen. That was awesome. And I said, let, let them put a clean turban on his head. So, that they, so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by, all this being done by God. Verse 6, And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among uh, those who are standing here. So, so I've saved you, I'm getting you right, I've got you right, I'm getting you right, here's your commandments, here's your instructions, here's how I want you to live. Walk in my ways, keep my commandments, display my mercy, I'm going to display my mercy upon you, yet you're going to recognize that you have responsibility as well. 
Uh, hear, hear now, O Israel, verse 8. The high, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. We'll get to this in a, a few weeks from now, but this is a reference to Jesus. Verse 9 says this. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Think about how much sin has happened since the beginning of time. How much sin has happened since Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Think about how much is uh, piling up uh, piles upon piles upon piles of sin. And God in His power can come in and in a single day wipe all of sin out. How is that done? Teach the gospel, preach the gospel to yourself. It's all done through Jesus. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And then here's a crazy moment. Verse 10 says this, And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbors to come under his vine and under his fig tree. A crazy moment. And on that day when we see that sin has been wiped away, we will want to invite our neighbors to see the goodness of the completed work of Christ, that they may sit under him instead of something else. Once you've recognized the mercy and compassion and love of Christ, all you will want to do is have everyone else to come and sit with you under Jesus. All my neighbors. Here we are talking about a Jewish folk who have been cap- who were captive who were captives of a foreign land, exiled. God brings them back to their homeland that the Gentiles had had taken over. There weren't Jewish people as neighbors anymore. There were these Gentiles, these exiles, these foreigners to God's people. And Zechariah, in this vision from God, is being told that once the people of God recognize who God is and what he's done and what he's doing and what he's going to do, every one of you will invite his neighbors to come sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Is this not a a commandment? Is this not an echoing of a commandment that Christ gives us as followers of him that we also would go to our neighbors and extend the love and the mercy that God has extended to us? That we also would go to the ends of the earth telling them and proclaiming the excellencies of Christ? But we don't want people just to sit under a stellar career full of money and earthly rewards. We don't want people to sit under a a new roof or a new teaching or a new program or a new medical plan or new whatever. Ultimately, we want people to sit under Jesus, resting in Him, in His completed work, because that's the only place life will ever find value. And so we must tell ourselves, preach to ourselves, but sit under Jesus every day, resting in Him and His completed work. He's the one that's getting us right. He will continue to get us right from, from here on forever because He has the power to do so. Let us not be distracted. And unfortunately, with these people in Zechariah 3 and 4, they became distracted. Maybe it was the people around them. Richard Phillips says the restoration community, the people belonging to God, had arrived some 18 years earlier to a wretched city, like Hobbes, right? To a wretched city in the midst of suspicious and hostile neighbors. And so with the things that were going on around them, the skepticism that was going on around them, they got distracted. Possibly many were persuaded by their neighbors 
to neglect the things of God. In fact, this governor, his name's Tatanai, uh, you can find him in Ezra chapter 5 and 6. He was a governor. He became even more uh, skeptical of what the Jews were trying to accomplish. The Gentiles were, were people around Jerusalem. They were, they were hostile to the, to the city's restoration, particularly to the temple's restoration, uh, mostly because they, the Jews were unwilling to associate with their neighbors. They were unwilling to, to, uh, to engage in maybe even uh, life with, with the, the folks around them. And so Governor uh, Tatanai, he sent officials to challenge the authority to rebuild the temple. He was challenging the Jews. Who gave you authority to go in and do this? And so they gave answers. Ezra 5 and 6 kind of tells you more about this. They gave answers to, to t- Governor Tatanai. Hey, this is who gave us the authority. He wasn't satisfied with those answers. And so he appealed to King Darius to find out who authorized the rebuilding of the temple. It wasn't an easy place. Just because it was Jerusalem and the, the, the place of peace, it still wasn't an easy task for them. And they got distracted, persuaded by by their neighbors to neglect the things of God instead of persuading their neighbors to worship the one true God. Right, possibly many had abandoned their role as representatives of, of redemption and restoration and began living like the world around them instead of the God who, who saved them. So the numbers, a result of possible persecution, the numbers were few that were still rebuilding the temple. And the strength, uh, the weight and the burden of the broken world was on them and they were, they were waning in their, in their strength. They were weakening in their uh, perseverance. It was so small they, they began to turn to other things. And so someone, someone needed to be reinvigorated. Someone needed a word from the Lord to, to remind them of what their task was. Someone needed to be reinvigorated. They needed to be reminded of what the true work really was. I mean, what was going to be the oil that would fuel their lampstand, that would shed light on these things? What's going to be the gas for their car to keep things going, the wood for their fire, the router for their Wi-Fi? What's going to keep them going? So we catch up in chapter 4. It says this, verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each side of the lamps that are on the top of it. It's crazy, right? I mean, this is a crazy little image, maybe of a candelabra or some type of chandelier or maybe a menorah. And there were two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? What these are? And I said, I already asked the question. Why are you repeating? I don't know what's going on here. No, my Lord. Verse 6. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but, my, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. R- remember the task of rebuilding the temple? How are you going to accomplish it? Not by might. Not by the number of people that you have. Not by might. Not by the number or the great number of work or the workforce or the great laborers that you have. Not by power. Not by your physical strength. But instead by the Spirit of the Lord. Church, First Baptist Church Lovington, how often have we made those excuses? We don't have enough people. We need younger folks with more strength to do these things. Could we just take this word right here and say... We don't need more people. 
We don't need more strength. We need the Spirit of God to do the work. H.C. Leupold says, If success is to be gained in the achievements of the people of God, it will not be secured by what man can do, but only by the Spirit's work. We cannot depend on our own strength or our own numbers to accomplish what God desires to accomplish in this world today. We must be dependent upon the Spirit of the Lord. Not by strength, not by might, but by the Spirit of the Lord. Even the Jews in this moment had began trusting in their own strength, their own power, their own might, their own numbers. And in that they weakened. They got distracted. They needed to be reinvigorated. The only way that was going to happen was through God's Spirit. We must fight every day against the teaching that I can do this, or I've got this, or I can achieve, or I can succeed, or I can whatever, I can do whatever I put my mind to, especially in terms of what God desires for us. If we think that we can accomplish salvation or sanctification or maturity or justification or any of those things, if we think that we can accomplish those on our own, we have misinterpreted everything the Bible says. It is about God getting us right for His glory. Us resting in Him, trusting in His faithfulness to His promises, trusting in His faithfulness to the fact that He's going to power us to do what He desires for us to do. I mean, this is in close relation to Haggai chapter 1, verse 9. You've been living for yourselves. You've been living for, uh, for your own will. You've been trying to do these, all, all these things by yourself. All the while, the house of the Lord lies in ruin. What have you done neglecting things? What have you done trusting in self? You must no longer trust in your power or your might, but you must trust in God doing all the work. Not by might. Zerubbabel, not by power, Zerubbabel, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace and grace to it. Zerubbabel, you can only accomplish something small. And the thing that you accomplish that you think is great, maybe this is the size of a mountain, will become a plain at the work of the Lord. He can remove that mountain. He can remove iniquities. He can remove mountains. We must no longer trust in ourselves, our own strength, our own power. But we must trust in the Lord and the Lord alone. Again, we must fight every day against the teaching that you can do this, or you've got this, or I can achieve this, or I can succeed at whatever I put my mind to. Instead, we must trust that God is the one who's getting us right, and he will continue to get us right. We must trust in him and him alone. Verse 9 says this, or sorry, verse 8 says this, Then the Lord of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. There's this promise. So you began this work, and he will also see it through to completion. It sounds very similar to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will also see it through to completion. So the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Church, folks belonging to God this morning, I, I truly believe this word is for us. What happens when the work of the Lord is actually accomplished? Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. 
when we allow God's Spirit to work through us, then the church actually begins to accomplish what Christ desires for it to accomplish on this earth today. That the world would know that, the world in Lovington would know, that there are people belonging to God, sent by God to represent God as ministers of reconciliation, sharing the hope that they have in Christ to this lost and broken world. We must, we must stick to that task daily. The Lord will finish the work. What he has began will be finished. And we as the people belonging to him must be willing to be used by him. Verse 10 says this, For whoever is despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Hudson Taylor says, A little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing is a big thing. So here's what happens. When we neglect little or small things, when we look at small things like particularly maybe even the work that's happening, that's happening inside of you or the conviction of the Holy Spirit or the transformation that's happening or the small steps that we're taking, when we neglect those things, we have lost our sight, our vision upon Christ. We, put our, we begin putting our hope in other things, distracted by things of this world. We must continue focusing upon the hope that we have only in Christ. What matters the most, therefore, Richard Phillips says, is, is not the scale or the scope or the subject of the endeavor, but the faith that is willing to begin and to respond to our Lord with trusting obedience. No matter the size of the task, we must trust in the Lord and be obedient to Him and Him alone, trusting that He is the one that's getting us right and will continue to get us right, and that He, as He's getting us right and transforming us into His likeness, He will be made known to the world, to our neighbors, to whoever it is that we get to represent Him. Here's the final thought here. Forever who has despised, whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The people of God had been distracted. They'd grown weak. They looked at their numbers. They looked at their strength. They got distracted by those things. And they forgot about God working. They forgot about God's spirit. They forgot about him doing the work. But for whatever reason, when they saw Zerubbabel marching out, going back to the construction project, when they saw him walking, they, saw, they said maybe it was one thing. Oh, there's Zerubbabel. Still hopeful. But then when they saw the plumb line in his hand, I think hope extended. I think people were reinvigorated. Oh, not by my strength and my might, but by the Spirit of the Lord. And if this guy has hope in that, and he's still willing to work, he's still willing to, to persevere, then so will I. When Zerubbabel is seen with the plumb line in his hands, the people begin to rejoice. Because the work is continuing. Someone has faith in something and someone has hope in something and that person is Zerubbabel and he has hope in the Lord. So church, what about today? What about us? I mean, is it the, the building that's going to give hope to this town? Is it the church sign or the pews or the great coffee we have in the foyer? What, what is it that's going to give hope to this town? Is it going to be the person walking around in faith and in trust and obedience and in hope in Jesus, trusting in the small things, trusting in the huge thing that Christ has accomplished, trusting in this small little branch or the small little shoot Jesus? Are we going to trust in these things?
You see the plumb hand in the hand of the builder and it tells us that we see at length the great things that God is about to accomplish. The things that we only see as, as a shadow, dimly visible now, echoing throughout. God is still working. He's still sovereign. He's still on his throne. He is not giving up, giving up no matter what is happening in this world. Why do these people have so much hope? Because they see Zerubbabel having hope, trusting in what God has said. They say, like us today maybe, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. My, my hope this morning is this, that if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Jesus, that you would, you would kind of gauge or check what you're carrying around. What is it that you're holding in your hand like a Zerubbabel that's showing hope, that's showing uh, trust and obedience to Christ? Because this is what I feel like. I feel like most of us are, are like me, and we have a lot of things in our pockets, a lot of our baggage, and so we, we put all those things in something, and then we, we grab it because it's car, uh, you know, we've got it in a great little basket here or whatever, and then we carry it around, and all it is is a garbage pail, and people look at us and say, what do you have there? I got, I got a lot of hope. I got a checkbook. I got a debit card. I got a resume. I got all these things. And people are like, ooh, I got those things too. Trusting in garbage. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm just going to hold this like a baby. For God said, for God who said, 2 Corinthians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 6 through 12. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. When we hold garbage, it is ours. And God says, hold it all you want. It's not going to get anybody glory besides the garbage in you. But when we look at the treasure that we have in jars of clay, that the surpassing power belongs to God, here's what happens. Verse 8 says this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because, verse 10 says this, We are always carrying in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. The church is the hope of the world. Christ making his, his plea to the world through us. We have to be like Zerubbabel. We have to be like Paul. Get rid of the garbage, the rubbish. Hold on to Christ and Christ alone, that the people of the world, including yourself, may find trust and hope in him and him alone. Because he's the only one. He's the only one that can bring life to this dead and broken world. My hope for you this morning is this. If you are a believer, you would check what's in your hands. You would see what you're carrying around. What hope is it that you have? Is it rubbish? Is it garbage? Get rid of it. Drop it. Trust in God. If you are not a believer this morning... John 3 is clear on this. When Jesus spoke to Nick and Knight, he said, you must be born again. You had nothing to do with your first birth. You can have nothing to do with your second. Trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to get you right. So my hope this morning is that we would respond to him in that way. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for preaching to me this morning. 
how I have weakened in so many ways, been distracted by so many things, lost hope in so many different areas. God, what hope we have in Christ. What hope that we have to carry around in our bodies the hope of Jesus. Trusting and showing that the surpassing power belongs to you and you alone, God. That when we are crushed or afflicted, we can trust that we are not totally crushed or afflicted. That when we are perplexed, we can say we are not driven to despair. When we're persecuted, we're not forsaken by you. When we're struck down, we are not destroyed. Because we have the life of Christ who's getting us right with you. God, thank you for removing our iniquities, removing our filthy garments, and clothing us with the righteousness that's only right in your eyes that was provided through Jesus. God, help us to respond to you this morning in a way that glorifies you. God, as we sing, as we stand, as we pray, all those things this morning, God, God, I pray that you would be glorified in our actions this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.